This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 41, our look at how clinical trial designs and strategies are evolving, plus from the vault, a section of the 2020 episode that asked what we could learn from past drug trial failures and set the stage for researchers to learn the lessons we talk about in this week's episode. Stephen Harrison starts this conversation by shifting from the issue of inclusion and exclusion to the challenge in finding patients. He points out that while there are millions of NASH patients available in the U.S. alone, only a small percentage of these can actually access clinical trials. This is not only an issue of rural areas. He points out that the number of patients in Chicago enrolled in trials is minimal, despite the large population and high levels of metabolic disease in the Chicago area. He identifies this as both a weakness in the current system and an opportunity going forward. Jorn Schottenberg states that while one might assume more socialized government-centered systems in Europe would not have this issue, that assumption would be wrong. After a comment about stimulus-response psychology and the impact of screen fail rates on recruiter motivation, I suggest that the U.S. system might be better equipped to address this problem due to the higher investment in technologies and, as a result, the broader distribution regionally and among hospitals. I then asked Stephen to explain how mid-trial reassessment and screening criteria, something he mentioned earlier in the episode, works, and why it improves screen fail rates. His answer takes up the rest of the conversation. Stephen Harrison notes in today's episode that we have data from six sets of promising trials reporting over the next six to eight months. If they produce positive outcomes, this will result in part from the quality of medications and in part from the lessons investigators and sponsors have learned about improving trial designs as we discuss here and as compared to the vault episode we're presenting. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Stephen Harrison. That gets us to, to another issue that I think we wanted to talk about on this podcast, and that is finding these patients. If you think about all the NASH trials that we're doing and all the NASH trials that we've done and the thousands and thousands of patients that we've gone through, there's only so many people that are going into the NASH clinical trial funnel. It doesn't mean there aren't millions of NASH patients out there. It's just they're not able to access that funnel. They're, they're in rural areas, small towns. They don't have transportation. And so maybe they see a primary care doc who doesn't know anything about research or a, a GI doc that doesn't know anything about research or they don't live in an area that's adjacent to a brick-and-mortar research facility. So you could be in a downtown urban an environment and still not have access to NASH clinical trials. And I mean, I guess I'll just say it here on the podcast. I'll just give you an example. Think about Chicago. Chicago is a huge city, one of the top five cities in the United States as far as size goes. If you look at the number of NASH patients that are enrolled in clinical trials that come out of Chicago, you would think that that city is the thinnest healthiest, most athletic on the planet with no genetic predisposition to fatty liver because we're putting almost zero NASH patients in clinical trials out of a city as large as Chicago that has high rates of obesity, high rates of diabetes, high rates of metabolic syndrome. And and so it's, again, it's not just a rural environment. I mean, we could drive across the United States and go through small town after small town where there's no access to NASH clinical trials. And you could say that's the reason. But it's it's not. It's it's a much bigger issue than that. And so circling back to my comment on the NITs, the, these people, even if you were able to access them, they're not getting fiber scans. They're not getting MRI PDFFs and MR elastographies. And the, the providers aren't educated in NASH diagnostic tests to know to order an ELF or a NIS4 or to calculate a FAST score or to use a MyFiberScan app. So we're kind of relegated to 
the tried and true, getting after the brick and mortar centers that we do know about to teach them how to locate these patients, how to pre-screen for them. But I would argue that we were missing a big opportunity in, in targeting people that heretofore have never been offered an opportunity to do a clinical trial. So what do we as a community need to do to reach out to those patients? And how do we do that? And, and who do we need involved with that? Sponsors, CROs, regulatory authorities, patient advocacy groups, the podcast, everybody together? I don't know, but that's a huge area of, of opportunity for the patients as well as for the sponsors and as well as for the drug development community as a whole that we haven't tapped yet. We're just kind of going back to the same old well over and over again, and that's delaying our ability to enroll these trials. Jörn Schattenberg. You know, if you think about medical care, there are big difference between Europe and the U.S. You might say, you know, the things that Stephen are uh, describing is a lot based on inequality between groups, but it's not. It's the same fact, and even in socialized healthcare like uh, Germany, that these patients are not accessing NASH trials because the hurdles are at, at multiple levels. So clearly, even coming from a socialized healthcare system, I do see the same gatekeepers or the same problems for, for patients. They're not reaching the physicians offering those treatments. First of all, you are, and I would, in some ways, I would probably argue that for all the inequality in the U.S., there are things about the U.S. system that make it easier to get it right here than there. But I'll come back to that in a sec. My first thought as I was listening to, to Stephen, I had three or four, but the first one is, you know, in behavioral psychology, the single pattern that is least likely to produce positive behavior is a low and inconsistent success rate. So if I harken back to Stephen's comment about the obesity trial, the simple fact that you can drop a screen fail rate from 80 to 25 means that the people doing the recruiting are going to get a lot more frequent positive stimulus for what they're doing because more patients are going to get in, which goes back to Louise's comment about the nurses. What that says is the simple act of dropping more patients in the top of the funnel doesn't solve the problem because if you drop more patients in the funnel and you still have uh, hit rates that are way too low and where people aren't very good at understanding where they're going to hit and where they're not going to hit, then all you're going to do is you're going to reinforce enforce patterns of failure and it makes it harder in and of itself for that to succeed. It's a vital thing that we get more patients poured in the top of the funnel. It's equally or more important that we become more systematic and successful about getting patients once they're in the funnel through the funnel. So if I pull that back to the comment about the U.S. versus Europe, the more technology we have and the easier time we have distributing cutting-edge information within the medical system, the better job we're going to do staying on top of the later advances. And that would tell you that the U.S. might do better because we spend more money on it here and we've got more technology. So as you all learn the things you all are learning, the Americans have a better shot at putting it to play faster than the non-Americans do because, frankly, just because of things like you got more MREs available in the States than you do uh, on a per capita basis than you do in other parts of the world. So that would be thought number one. Thought number two, and this is a question, is the focus of a lot of our conversations on these topics over the last couple of years has really come down to screen fail rates, what improves them and what makes them worse. And today, Stephen raised the concept that's never been on this podcast before, which is mid-trial adjustment, kind of moving your fire mid-trial based on what you're seeing. Two questions. First of all, are we having success getting screen fail rates down with all the steps we're talking about? And then second, I'm going to want Stephen, I'm going to want you to come back and talk about what that means because it's just not something we've talked about here at all. So screen fail rates first and then mid-fire second. I think it has helped with screen fail rates some 
Um, I, I think it's trial specific because in a way it gets back to a comment I made numerous times in this podcast, and that is how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is one, but the light bulb has to want to change. So we can provide sites, study data in real time, and have a principal investigator, a coordinator call where we disseminate that information and say, look, if you make this change today in your screening practices, you will have a better success on liver biopsy. And and there are sites that take that to heart and do it, and there are other sites that just keep doing the same old way. But where they enact that, where they institute that change, there is differences that are being seen. So just maybe a little bit more about what that means, Roger. So if we start out and we say, okay, let's screen patients that have ASTs greater than 20 and fiber scan KPAs greater than 8 and a half and CAP scores greater than 280 to identify the NASH patient with F2, F3 fibrosis. We do that for maybe two or 300 screens and, you know, we get 150 liver biopsies and two thirds of them are screen fails and a third of them screen in. What we're doing now is we're taking all of that data and we're applying it to our non-invasive tests that are readily available to the people that are in the clinical trial. And so I mentioned earlier the CAP, the fiber scan, and the AST. Well, so there we use the, the FAST score because we know that that has been designed to find a, that same patient, a NASH patient with F2, F3 fibrosis. And the ideal cutoff is 0.67 in the clinical trial that we published uh, two years ago now. Well, as an example, when we apply the data in real time, what we see is that, yes, you could use a cutoff of greater than 0.67, and you have a high, high likelihood of getting patients in the trial. The problem is you're going to leave a ton of people that would otherwise qualify for the trial behind. So when we look at that data in the context of what I just mentioned, what we find is that there's a lower threshold for FAST score where we still get a high sensitivity and specificity or an ideal Uden's index. And for a trial we just did, for instance, it's 0.51. So it's not 0.67, it's 0.51. That gives us a better shot on goal of capturing more patients and qualifying them with an 80, 70, 80% chance of a success rather than a 70 or 80% chance of failure. But there is a sweet spot on the scale. You, you don't want to have your score so high that you enroll everybody that you bring in because then you're not going to screen a lot of people and many people that would otherwise have qualified are being left on the sidelines. Vice versa, you don't want to set your criteria so low that you screen everybody and your screen fell a ton of people, you know, they go to biopsy unnecessarily. So finding that sweet spot has been the challenge and that's why we do this real-time exercise a couple times in the middle of a study to show do we need to go up or do we need to go down to maintain an optimal screen fail rate at the same time making sure that we're not letting too many people in and we're not bringing in enough people. That's fascinating. Have you all taken a look at whether cohorts brought in at one level or another in the same trial have different performance within the trial? Now we haven't uh, as far as results in the study. We haven't taken the data out that far yet. Didn't feel like you've gotten to the finish line. That It seems to me like that's, that's the piece that seals that deal, right? If it turns out that as you make those adjustments, it doesn't have a lot to do with how well the drug performs. Right. Then you don't have to ask a question of what the right answer is. The answer is it's all the right answer. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you.
We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. I'll be off next week, but Louise Campbell will lead Jorn Schottenberg and a panel of health professionals and patient advocates discussing the nurse's role in clinical care pathways. I can't wait to listen, and you shouldn't either. I'll be back the week after that for episode 43, which will look at the evolution of combination therapies and their place in our future. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>